Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another fine episode of Why Bother with your host, John Sabluski, the podcast that didn't need to be made by the host who really didn't want to make it. Today, I am joined by Connie Hanel, a college professor, an entrepreneur, a car mechanic, a handy woman. She's got a list of things that she can do that spans from here to the moon and back. So without further ado, I am very excited to introduce my guest today, Connie Hanel. Hi, Connie. How's it going today? It's going great, John. How are you? I am great. You know, I I, I thought that when I was uh, thinking about an intro for you uh, yes. and looking at your, your resume and your list of things that you are able to do, that how would I ever be able to just consolidate that? So I just named it all. So I hope that's enough. That it's more than enough, John, more than enough. <laughs> so, so Connie, uh, usually on this show, I bring people in that I know, obviously right. I know you and, uh, and we, we have a connection that most of my guests don't have. And I would hope that all my guests except you don't have, because that would be a little weird. It would be very weird, John. It would be very weird. Yes. Uh, and, and that is that I am currently dating your daughter. Right. <laughs> so. yep. The other problem with that, John, is if there were more people, then what would that say about my daughter? Or me. So. Or, well, yeah. So, so I think we ought to just move on from that portion of how we know each other, huh? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so. So, Connie, I've known you for about three years now. Uh, in, in that time, uh, I've learned an awful lot about uh, uh, you uh, in your past, how you've uh, come to where you are today, and the, the maybe the careers that you've had. Um, you know, a few years ago, probably back in like 2010, I remember there being that statistic that most people will change careers uh, five times or more in their lifetime. And I think, and maybe you could talk a little bit about this as you're introducing yourself, is I think that that number five may be too low. I think people are doing this a lot more frequently than uh, than what we think. So why don't you just introduce yourself a little bit, start out uh, wherever you feel comfortable, and uh, we'll take it from there. Well, I think you already did introduce me, right? So my name is Connie Hanel, and um, I do know John, and he makes me sound a lot more exciting than I actually am talking about all the different things that I do. My passion is very diverse, but my main passion is really education and learning and working with people and helping them to uh, be more empowered to understand how they can move forward and learn things. Because I think, I think in this society and the way things have changed, um, a lot of uh, people struggle and they think that that means that there's something kind of wrong with themselves. And it really isn't. It's a lack of understanding about how you learn and how you move forward. And and I worry about people because when they aren't successful in a learning environment, sometimes it rolls over into other things. And, and that could be somewhat like we're talking about careers. And you talk about all my different careers. Those things kind of led me to this place now to doing the work that I'm doing now. When you talk about five careers. I, when I was younger, that was totally not the number. People found a job and got with that job and stayed with it till they died or retired. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and my jobs are varied. 
And mine were just a matter of survival. Sometimes it's people climbing the corporate ladder. I know I teach a career counseling class. And so sometimes it's people climbing a corporate ladder. Mm -hmm. But other times, in my case, it's a matter of survival, right? The economy is changing. Jobs come and go. Jobs are available. Jobs aren't available. You want to keep working. You want to be able to pay your bills. So you have to reinvent yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what I've had to do over the years is consistently reinvent myself. Sure. And, you know, you, you bring up a really good point, reinventing yourself, because I think that the more skills, more interests and more uh, things that people enjoy doing will allow for them to find uh, those careers or those jobs when times are tough. That's uh, right. You know, I mean, it's it's I, I have friends um, who have for 35, 40 years did one thing, you know, like you were right. saying, uh, my grandfather, you know, my, 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 fa my, uh, other grandfather, grandparents, they got their job 30 years. They put it in, they retired, they had a pension, they moved down, they were done. They would never have dreamt of working somewhere for maybe three, four years. And then saying, you know what? This isn't working. Maybe I got to find something else, you know, right. or maybe I, maybe, you know, God forbid you're let go from a job and you need to just, you know, find something that's going to help your family. Um, right. And it, it's just fascinating. So I think that you brought up a good point. I don't know if anybody is going to be doing the same job for 30 years anymore. I don't know if it, that's. It's hard. It's a hard thing. And particularly now when you look at the coronavirus, right? Mm -hmm. We've all been um, doing our jobs. And, and now those people who were doing really well and those people who were doing average, the virus has maybe eliminated those people's positions who have done really well or put them on a pause. And the pause has been so long that now the people who were doing eh, are actually doing much better than the people who were, you know, and, and so there's this imbalance. So how long do you put, leave yourself in a holding pattern yeah. um, waiting for the next opportunity or do you go out and try to do something else and, and what happens? And so for me, a big, a big part of a lot of my career changes was when the banks all went kind of up and the real estate market crashed and funding went away and I was working for a nonprofit. I mean, and, and so jobs just started disappearing in mm -hmm. the area that I was in. So it was like, all right, what's next? This isn't going to change and I can't sit back and wait for it to change. Right. Cause I still got to yeah. I like to eat, so I well, still got to eat. That, that seems to be a, a <laughs> growing concern for most people. How do you eat if you don't have something yeah. giving you income, right? Right. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're laughing, but it's not funny, right? It's not it, funny it's at all. It's not funny it's at not all. Funny at all. I mean, you know, and 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 luckily throughout coronavirus, um, and it's still happening. You know, uh, it's it. You and I were both lucky, and our families were lucky that we still had income because as education, we went to virtual teaching, right? So, right. so that was, that was definitely a learning curve, but I think that when you're an educator, uh, there, you, you need to have that flexibility. And I think that throughout our, our path, because you and I, uh, shared similar trajectories, I think, uh, in, in, you know, restaurant experience, uh, management experience, different levels of that, uh, working with people, um, working in industries that may have been, that were, that were downsized just because of right. what they did. Right. Uh, and then having to recreate yourself. So I'm going to share a, a little bit of my past. And I think that you'll, uh, understand this and you probably know it. So it was 2016. I was working for a newspaper and that's the end of that story. 
newspaper right. disappeared, right? It just right, right. Was gone. And it was at that moment that I said, I need that change. I need to figure something out. And I remember one of the big things being, <laughs> I want a pension and I want to be able to retire one day. Right. And I never thought teaching would have been what I was going to end up in, right? But helping people and instilling that excitement of education and learning, I found to be fascinating. And that's how I got to where I am. And I, right. would, I would think, based on what you were just talking about, is helping people make those choices, that that's how you got to where you are right now. Never in a million years would I thought that this is where I would have ended up. This is not who I thought I'd be. And sometimes I think, I wish I would have started this sooner mm -hmm. because I really love where I'm at now. But I also realize that everything that I experienced is what drove me to this direction to where I am today. So although it would have been great if I figured it out sooner, I'm not sure then I was ready for, for something like that. And, and you said something that made me think of um, what one of the things that I teach in this, in this career course, which is luck. You know, there's this mm -hmm. notion of luck. And when, you, when you're looking for a job, why are some people lucky and why are some people unlucky? And luck is really something that you create. And I, and, I, and I look at you, and that's one of the things that I admire about you, right? Because you're open-minded to things. You're open to things that come your way. You're willing to try it. And so I think luck is when you put yourself out there, you consistently market yourself, but you're open to trying different things. And through that, you may find a path or a passion of something you didn't expect. And that's what, you know, me here teaching now yeah. is being my primary income. Um, I would have never have guessed that that would have been the path I would have taken, but I was open mm -hmm. to opportunities and things that came before me. And as I grew and learned different things, yeah, I tried them and that's how I ended up here. And I think that's why you're so multifaceted and, and, and multi-talented as well, because, you know, you um, are open to that and willing to try things that interest you and well, learn more about them. Well, well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. But, uh, and, and the check is in the mail for those comments. So <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank that's you very much. So, you know, but yeah, I think that's great. So you talk a little bit about luck and you have this career class and, you know, back in probably the early fifties and sixties, you know, when the height of, uh, like the machine, uh, uh, assembly line and we had labor jobs and people would get a job working for general motors, uh, that could, that could feed an entire family of four five, maybe six people on one right. income. So you have this this industry booming and, and this is a, a labor that, that was set and you would have that job for 30 years. Right. So can I no, just clarify one thing? Sure. I, I wasn't alive then. That's all I want to <laughs> just say. Cause you're, you're asking me like, I might have that experience. So I just, okay, keep going, John. Just want to make sure everyone knows I was not alive in the fifties. <laughs> so, well, that was, that's a good clarification. <laughs> okay. Keep going, I, John. So, now I've lost my trick. Oh, so we talked about that and, and, and you got a job. This, this notion of doing what you love was not necessarily not important. not important at all. My grandparents, when I told my grandmother that I wanted to go to film school, she said, for what? Yeah. <laughs> like, like my, I, I mean, and in my family, you had to go to college. It didn't matter what you did. I wanted to go to film school for what? 
Right. Right. <laughs> you know? So how has it changed in, in, in your curriculum with career um, placement and discovery for students? How do we how do we find that that doing what you love and being able to make a life for yourself when that way of thinking is so new to the world? Oh, well, John, I don't think there's enough time in this program to dissect that. But, you know, one of the things that I that I um, help people look at when um, through my through my background in, in counseling is, is that, you know, if you kind of look at a, um, a line and you think of the beginning of the line being not where you want to be, the center of the line being almost where you want to be and the end of the line being exactly where you want to be. And, you know, sometimes in a career, your career might be almost exactly where you want to be, but your income is not anywhere close to where you want to be, right? So you have job satisfaction, but you don't have income satisfaction. And then you can reverse that and have um, income satisfaction, but you don't have career or job satisfaction, right? So it's trying to find um, a way to get those things to go together and um, to, to be balanced. And sometimes you have to start out with not liking your pay and liking your job or the other way around until you can work your way through the system to find the place that you wanna be. But ultimately, I mean, I think all of us wanna do something that we love every day. However, it, it, we still sometimes have to be like our grandparents and our great grandparents. Mm -hmm. We have to do things we don't want to do. And we have to do things at work and sometimes we have to take jobs. And, you know, there are a lot of jobs that I took that I learned from and I grew, but they weren't necessarily uh, a forever job as, as some sure. people will call them, right? They were a stepping stone job and they were a way to pay my bills and make the next step and build a resume. So I think that's a really tricky thing because we expect people to come out of high school, know what they mm -hmm. want, do it. And go mm -hmm. on and never change. And, you know, um, if you don't mind me saying this, I think my daughter actually said this to me because she went to school for music education, 100% mm -hmm. convinced that's what she was going to do. Yeah. People in our family told her why. Because at the time, there were really no jobs. Like, you, why? And she's mm -hmm. like, this is what I'm passionate. By the time she finished her four-year degree, there were lots of jobs. There right? were, yeah. But she didn't take a job in in music education, she came to me and she goes, I'm sorry, I've disappointed you. I said, you didn't disappoint me. What are you talking about? She said, well, I went to school. It's like I wasted it because I didn't do what I went to school for. I said, absolutely not. You go to school to learn and grow and discover and figure out who you are, right? Yes. And if in that path, you figure out that's not really your passion, but it still opened the doors for you to go and do things, then then you have, um, you've, you've reached your goal of education. Right. And yeah. I think that's the mistake people make. They think that, OK, I've committed to this and now I'm stuck. Yeah. And, and I think you bring up a really good point, too, because uh, it's, it's one of those situations where we're, we're seeing in society now more and more that that the, the college system isn't for everybody. Right. And we have right. we have the opportunity for trade school and you can still further your education in different avenues. You know, the, the liberal arts diploma isn't the make or break thing. And, right. and, and, and you can, I mean, I know plumbers uh, and electricians and uh, craft uh, 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 carpenters that make 
six figures a year. Absolutely. Uh, doing exactly what they love to do because they like working with their hands. And I don't know anybody who does not ever did not ever need a plumber on a Sunday night at like, <laughs> like it's like Christmas Eve, right. or so, like, you know, uh, golden time. Right. It, it's, it's something that I think that is interesting. And I think that doing what you love could be, or doesn't necessarily have to always be molded into this thing that society has made it. Yeah. But yeah. I, I think, I think that that's a, actually what you just said is kind of a great testament to what's going on right now. Everybody's kind of arguing and fighting and there's all these tensions because people are battling with their beliefs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And my beliefs are right. And your beliefs are wrong. And, and it's the same. Th it's not the same thing. I'm not trying to minimize, but I'm saying when you talk about careers, someone will look at like, you know, Madison and say, well, you're going to be a music teacher. You know, when my father graduated with his with his Ph.D., he was a psychologist. And, you know, somebody said to him, well, all that work and you could have been a real doctor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like. So as a society, we value different things, but trades mm -hmm. can make as much or more money than a doctor. Yeah, you're absolutely and right. So, and each one has equal value in our society. We need them all. I, if, if I need my appendix out, I hope there's a doctor. And if or my lights aren't working, <laughs> I hope there's an electrician who will come to my house and fix it because I don't know how to do that. Right. Exactly. Or, or so. maybe it's the same person who just does like the appendix. Uh, no. On the side. No. <laughs> no. So, no. <laughs> but you're, yeah. So I, I think that this is an interesting topic and, and you did say that, uh, that w there's not enough time in this program to dissect it, but I think yeah. we, we, we got the conversation there rolling. So I want to talk a little bit about restaurant management because I think that restaurant management or working in food service or retail or whatever is something that every person should have to do for at least a week in their life. I don't care if it's if it's uh, working at the front counter of a fast food establishment one week because I think it would make everybody a better human being. <laughs> okay, the fact that you said one week, I can get on board. If you said more than that, you know, you know, I don't think people understand how hard. First of all, I don't think people understand how hard it is to be your own owner. I think when people yeah. think that you your own you own your own business, you have the ability to come and go as you please and you make the rules and no one's your boss, which couldn't be farther than the truth. And when you work in the restaurant business, that is such a difficult business. And for a, a couple of years in there, when I was working on my master's, I did um, business consulting for startup businesses or people who were in business and went in and did some consulting work to help them. And the first thing I would say when people would come to me and say, I want to start a business and it's food, it's restaurant, I'd say, pick a different business. <laughs> because it's a really, really, really hard business. Your product is perishable. It has to be handled in a particular way. It's very easy for it not to be produced the same way. Mm -hmm. And the people that you're relying on 
um, is, is a large staff of people. There's so many different sections. There's rules and regulations and, and it, and it's, it's a hard business, even for the people who are working in it, the servers and that, you know, it's mm -hmm. a hard business. If you get it right and you can survive past five years, then you're most likely on the road to having a successful business. But that mm -hmm. first five years, some people would come to me and say, I'm going to open up a business, but I'm not going to be in it. I'm like, then don't open it because <laughs> if you're not committed to it as your life for five years, unless you have exponential cash to pay somebody to come in and actually run that business for you, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're, you're not going to be successful because people need to see that the person running the ship is just as committed. And if they're not committed, I'm not going to work that hard for you. So it's a tough business. There were a lot of things I loved about running a business. My customers were the bomb. They were great. I love them coming in. They were consistent. They, we talked about their life. We shared events. We, I mean, that's the, that's the number one thing that I miss about not being in business anymore for myself is mm -hmm. in that, in, in regards to restaurant work, you know, yeah, and and the food. I if you didn't catch that earlier, I like food. So you know, that for, that part food, too. Food is the thing. It is you know like <laughs> like, and I, I know we've had this conversation, but you know like for me personally, I don't have any vices. I really don't. You know, there are people that turn to like substance issues. That, I don't have any of that. I like to eat, and it's unfair that there's such a repercussion in weight gain for enjoying yeah. to eat. <laughs> like, <laughs> and a nice drink. And would, a, would be good too. A, yeah, a nice drink to eat. A, to to you know. So restaurant and and you know networking. So it doesn't matter if you're a door to door salesperson or if right. you're you know you're own, you're working. It's all about networking. So it's probably even more important for somebody who's working for their own business, like you were, uh, to to be there because people know you. They know that right. if something comes up. And they and they need uh, they need an order filled. Oh, maybe I could call Connie. I, I talk to her all the time. And you're probably more than happy to go a little above and beyond if they've been somebody that you've gotten to know, right? Right. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about what your business was that you ran? Yeah. So, so the the first business that I ran was a ice cream and candy store, um, and it was called Sweet Memories. And the reason why it was called Sweet Memories was because my grandparents, who um, immigrated here from Greece, had candy stores. So, Gardner Sweets, Elko Bar, Condrell's Candies, and then um, some of our close family friends, Antoinette Sweets, Alethea's, which I, you know, hopefully some people have heard of, of these. Mm -hmm. And, and I just remember growing up in this candy store and how amazing it was and, and helping. And, you know, back then and things weren't automated. They were a bunch of women, um, typically women sitting in the back room and they were chocolate dippers and they would literally have a huge vat of chocolate and a marble slab in front of them and whatever it was that needed to be covered caramels um clusters creams in the vat it went out on a tray with a little decoration on the top to tell you what it was on a tray cooling correctly um and then you know they went on to the next and that's what i grew up with right mm -hmm. homemade toppings and so i always wanted to get back to that i always wanted to be able to do that so my husband and i uh, ventured into east aurora and picked up a business and 
changed its name to Sweet Memories because it was based on the memories that I had as a childhood and of these stores and these locations. First one was on Bailey Avenue in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. um, and started to recreate that the best we could in a in a modern kind of time, right? Sure. And and my my grandfather gave me um, it was it was really kind of amazing. He he handed over this metal um, recipe card index box, right? Mm -hmm. And he gave them to me, and in there were all of his recipes. Very few of them actually said the amounts right yeah, or had yeah. details but at one point he made his daughter my aunt marianne and type up all of the <laughs> recipes that had been handwritten uh-huh and um one of the things he was famous for was his hot fudge and i remember that I wanted to learn how to make this hot fudge. I had the recipe, I got all the ingredients together and I asked him to explain it to me. And he said that I would, could not make it because I didn't have a copper pot because candy makers use copper pots because copper pots are the best for equal heat distribution and control. Uh -huh. So I said, okay, I'm gonna go buy a copper pot. Well, copper pots are really expensive and I was just starting out. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't afford it. So I went out and I bought this, this big pot and it was not as much money. And I made the hot fudge and I put some in a jar and I sent it to his house and I got a phone call and my grandfather says, you bought a copper pot. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I didn't. And he's like, then you must be some kind of a miracle woman because this tastes just like my hot fudge. And the only way to make it work is in a copper pot, right? And I'm yeah. like, so he's like, I need to come out. So the next day he had somebody drive him out to the store because he wanted to see how I did it because yeah. he didn't believe me that it could be done. Uh -huh. um, and so that was, you know, and then, then we just started making that hot fudge nonstop and it was, it was great. It's one of the things I miss about not having the business. The hot fudge. Well, of course, cause yes. you, you could put that on a flip flop and it would taste good, you know? I mean, it, <laughs> oh my well, God. I frequently did just scoop it up in a spoon. <laughs> and, and one of the benefits of, of owning a candy store is people are like, don't you get sick of it? I said, no, you just rotate, right? I'll eat caramels this week, creams next week. I'll eat sponge candy the week after that. I can have milkshakes, hot fudge sundays. you know, just, just keep changing it up. I'm not going to get sick of this stuff. <laughs> So uh, earlier in that thing, you, uh, your story, you were talking about how uh, usually women worked on hand making the candies. Right. Uh, how did you, or how is it designed? I don't know. Uh, when you put like the little design on the top to know that it's a caramel or it's a, mm -hmm. it's a chocolate covered cherry or it's a jelly or whatever, is that just something inside that particular store that that's what they know that is? Or is that something that's passed on for all candy making, like no matter that's where you went? That's a great question. And I don't actually know the answer to that question. I think that in some ways, some, you know, because if you look at some boxes, they have codes. And so I think mm -hmm. there's some universal symbols, mm -hmm. but I think that there are some that, that places do themselves. They really don't do hand dipping anymore because <clears throat> people who are hand dippers, there's something called tempering chocolate. Mm -hmm. And that is when you melt chocolate, real chocolate. Um, and you bring it back to room temperature, you have to temper it. It's the way that you bring it back to a solid form. And I, and I guess the best way to talk about it, it, it would be like a puzzle, right? 
And so when you take a puzzle apart, the puzzle needs to go back together and the pieces need to fit together the same. Mm -hmm. Well, if you don't, if you don't bring it back to room temperature again, it's like cutting pieces of the puzzle off and it won't come together right. And that's when you get candy that has that sort of gray look to it or speckly look to it. It means that it's untempered chocolate and something somehow, somewhere it melted Mm -hmm. and did not come back to room temperature appropriately. So now they have these things called enrobers where you, you it, it, and they, they're, they're huge in length. Mm -hmm. And you put the, the, we'll call it naked candy, whatever it is you're covering, sponge, right? Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Caramels in the beginning. And it kind of goes over a little conveyor belt that puts chocolate on the bottom. And then it goes over a waterfall of chocolate. And there's a space about this big before it goes in a tunnel to be cooled. Mm -hmm. And a person stands in the middle and that's where they do the marking of the chocolate. And then at mm -hmm. the other end of the candy, out comes the candy. And, and everyone knows the I Love Lucy, right? I was See? just thinking this while you were mentioning it. Yep. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly what that is. It, it, technically, when those are coming out there, those are coming out of the end of an enrober and people are down there and they're supposed to box them. Yeah, they don't come out that fast. But, <laughs> but they, but yeah, they don't come out that fast. But it made for good comedy and is one of my favorite things to watch. Oh, yeah. You know, what, what I love about candy uh, businesses, because there, there's that's, that's first of all, that's a very localized thing, right? Because you have your neighborhood in, in Buffalo and in the suburbs and everything around. You had your candy stores in your neighborhood and that's who you would go to right it was right. probably very rare for somebody who lived in east aurora to drive down to the east side of buffalo for the candy unless they did something there that was so out of the norm well people will drive now but yeah it's probably like florists right my parents yeah. had a florist shop and that's the shop we all used and when we grew up that's now you go online and there's very little loyalty to any of that it is. And I think that that, you know, neighborhoods don't really have that same camaraderie anymore because you got the Internet. You can go anywhere. I could I could call 1-800-Flowers and have a bouquet. I don't know where it comes from, but I can have right. it shipped to my house overnight for some ridiculous amount of money. Uh, and it, it's just it's bizarre. But candy. So now let's talk a little bit about sponge candy. Yes. All right. Now, sponge candy is a buffalo staple, and it's it's. I just learned this fact about sponge candy probably in the last two or three years that there is a huge amount of waste that's involved in it in order to get that good sponge that we like. Now, is that the truth? Uh, well, there. yeah, I mean, there, there is some waste that goes into it. And I, I probably should have had some pictures prepared for you so you could see what that sponge making process is like, because mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's pretty, you know, sponge candy, first of all, is so expensive it is. is because it weighs almost nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's very labor intensive. And so chocolate is sold by the pound. And so if you sold it by the average pound for the amount of labor and time and the ingredients that went into it, you wouldn't, it wouldn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so sponge candy, what happens is, is it, it's really, 
it's really um, like corn syrup and, and sugar and gelatin mix and baking soda and it's heating it at a, a very high heat and it's beating it and it takes time and it's, it's tough on the shoulders. And then you have these giant marble slabs, right? And the reason why marbles use so much in candy making is that it maintains um, a cool it's cool and so it draws the heat out of out of things right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so then these custom molds are made they're usually these big square giant molds and it takes two people to pick up a copper pot you pour it into this giant mold and then and then the stuff just rises gets really tall and rises and and, and you leave it alone and when it's set you take the mold off of it mm -hmm. well Everything on all the edges, all the outside exposure is hard. It's really hard as a rock. You, you could probably suck on it like a hard candy. Mm -hmm. So they literally use saws mm -hmm. that you would use to cut wood, right? Mm -hmm. Except we only use it for the, for the sponge candy. And the, and the huge brick is cut into four sections and then you trim off all of the hard candy off the edges and you're left with that foamy core inside and mm -hmm. then you use the saw to saw that into the smaller pieces mm -hmm. that go into sealed containers so that the air because it's it's really essentially just sugar that's why when you put it on your tongue it just dissolves yeah yeah and um, and then it's the chocolate that coats it that prevents it from breaking down. So um, sometimes uh, sponge candy will have more chocolate on it. And it used to be only made in the wintertime because um, chocolate factories or, or mom and pop places, they, they weren't air conditioned and mm -hmm. you couldn't control it. And the humidity could compromise the sponge and then someone would get sponge and it would be bad and they would think you made a bad product. So the candy makers used to only make that available in the winter when there was no humidity and they could control the quality of the sponge candy. That is fascinating that, you know, the art form of the candy making, which is, is, you know, there's very few that I know of local candy stores left. I know there's a couple in South Buffalo, and I'm sure they're sprinkled out around the area. But it's just it's just fascinating that there was so much time and effort put into it. And that was a labor of love. You yes. love your business. And you were saying earlier about how when you would consult if uh, for new businesses opening up, if the owner didn't want to be involved, it wasn't going to succeed. And right. I can't, I can't imagine a candy store existing where the owner wasn't working there seven days a week for eight to 10, 15 hour days, whatever it was, making sure their product was there because it's their name that was probably on the box. Well, I never met anyone who wanted to do a candy business who didn't want to be 100% involved. So mostly it was people who were looking at running restaurants or say just ice cream shops, right? Mm -hmm. And I think you talk about not having loyalty necessarily or driving far for candy or neighborhood areas. I think that's the part of the business, which is the ice cream store that creates that loyalty. Because I everyone has a local ice cream store that they like and that they'll go into. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and and, and that and also the candy and the ice cream sort of support itself because ice cream is very popular in the summer 
but not in the winter. And candy is very popular in the winter because that's gift giving times. Um, that's um, when you hostess gifts, it's Easter, it's Valentine's, you know, those types of things. I mean, Easter used to be a make or break holiday. We have a lot of these amazing metal molds. And this is something that is a testament to the way business used to be. Mm-hmm. Amazing metal molds, right? Now they're all plastic, but they were expensive. So what the candy makers in Buffalo used to do is they shared their molds because they couldn't afford to have all the molds for Easter. Mm-hmm. So they would have stamped on the mold the name of the family. And then what would happen is I would make my candy and then I would give my molds to you and you would give your molds to me and your name would be stamped on them so that I knew to give them back to you, right? And they would rotate like that so that we could all have a nice assortment of of Easter candies and molds to give. I mean, that's really when the biggest time was for the molds that they were made was during, was during Easter. Yeah. Yeah. And now it, you know, we're, we're really kind of cutthroat and, and, um, but there's still some places around um, like, you know, Alethea's Mm -hmm. um, and Antoinette's, um, and Condrell's Candies, it's now called King's Condrell's. Richie King, he and his wife run that, and they still make candies in their in their backyard. And mm-hmm. oddly enough, my mother's side of the family, which is Palakis from Erie, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. they had a candy place, too. Called, I used to joke that my parents met at a candy convention, but it really was... <laughs> It really was because they were both Greek, but they had a place called Palakas Candies and they used to be candy teachers and people from all over the United States would come to their school in, in Erie, Pennsylvania and learn how to make candies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that was pretty amazing, too. So that's where that passion came from to be a candy maker. Sure. You know, I, I, I remember being in home and careers class in seventh grade and the uh, Valentine's Day candy sale was big. And we, it was our job in home and careers to work with our teacher, Mrs. Kalanick, and we had to make the candy. And she had a big copper double boiler. And right. uh, she would pu- she'd plug it in at 7 a.m. She'd get there early. She We had uh, the little chocolate wafers. And mm-hmm. she would melt those. And my job, I kid you not, was the giant Hershey Kiss in the plastic mold and I'd have to scoop it in, put it in, and then I'd have to drop it to get the air out. And right. then it, she had all the refrigerators in the classroom cranked up to freezers and we would set the candy in there for it to, to set. Right. But then I was promoted from that department very quickly yes. into, into the sponge candy bagging a division of the of the Valentine's Day candy sale, and I remember uh, three ounces. We would put three ounces of uh, sponge candy into this bag, and I would have to put it into the sealer, right? Yep. And yeah. sometimes you even uh, had a sealer. Very we, impressive. We had a sealer. You know, we, we were we were we were quite the assembly line. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I just remember one time uh, the scale was off and they never showed me how to tear the scale to get it back. Right. So I had this one bag of sponge candy that was, it was a hefty bag. And I was like, this is amazing how much you're getting in three ounces. And the next bag, there's like two pieces in it. And that was three ounces. <laughs> John. So I, I was about to say, I wish I knew you when I had the candy store so you could have helped me. And now you told me that story. 
And I'm glad you didn't help me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say I did a lot. Well, that was the same teacher that taught me how to use the seam ripper in sewing. And I use that an awful lot. So I, I, I've learned that I'm quite the implementer. I like to get to things done quickly. Yeah. But yeah, I'm yeah. not really the developer where I slow it down <laughs> and think it through. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about uh, home improvement projects. Now, uh, knowing you, uh, you have tackled many uh, different projects, woodworking, uh, redoing bathrooms, putting up walls, putting in decks, uh, all kinds of great things. Where did your interest in uh, working on home and career, uh, 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 not home and career, I'm serious, home improvement projects come from? Right. And, 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 what what would that mean to other people to learn how to do this kind of stuff? Uh, how, how is that a skill that they can utilize uh, right. in their day-to-day -day life? I, well, you know, first of all, I'm cheap, right? And so I want to get things done. And so sometimes it's expensive to get things done if you want to get them done right. But I think I think the biggest thing is, and, and, and I think this started back with my interest in business and watching my family develop business. You know, they go into a space that was, that was uh, nondescript and they would fill it up and they would do things to it and it would transform and it would be like a magical place, like a candy store or something like that. Yeah. And then... Um, my parents introduced me to these amazing people, um, Rick and Paula Hainstutter. And uh, as I knew them, they kind of would buy these, these they, their first home that they got was an old family home that came to them in the city of Buffalo that really needed to be redone. And they were nice enough to take me as a young girl into the, into the home. And I'm saying they were nice, but really maybe they were using me as cheap labor here, but I would go in and they would teach me things and we would strip the woodworks and, and, you know, I would watch them do tiling, but to make a really long story short, Rick just said to me, you know, there's almost anything you can do. He said, he said, start with something that has a high fudge factor. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, you know, if you're going to do home improvement, pick with something that if you make a mistake, it, it, the house isn't going to collapse. Yeah. It's just, it's just an aesthetic thing. Yeah. And that, and then no one will really know it's there unless, you know, unless you point it out to them. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so the first thing he did was teach me how to wallpaper. And then I was in an apartment and it was, 90 degrees in the summer and no air conditioning and he said put a ceiling fan and i'm like i don't know how to do that so he like went out to home depot and he bought me this book about how to do things and he came over and and you know he was good because instead of just doing them he made me do it so you know i i slowly realized that electricity isn't that scary it's pretty simple yeah. Yeah. you can change things out and and i learned how to do that and then a lot was working side by side with him you know mm -hmm. so when we moved into the house we're in now i wanted to gut the kitchen so i'm like I never hung cabinets. Can you can you help me? He's like, sure. So we I got the kitchen and and he teaches me how to hang cabinets and we hang the cabinets and then we get to the tiling. But he had taught me how to do tiling when I was like 18 years old. Mm -hmm. So I did, you know, and, and so I think a lot of these things are scary, but places like Home Depot and Lowe's, they have stuff like that all the time. And then just recently I put a deck on the back. It's great because a $300 deck in material in my time could have been an $800 or $1,000 deck if someone else put it on for me, right? Sure. So I look at it as I get to stand back and feel good about what I did. Mm -hmm. I get to be physical so I can justify the cupcakes and the milkshakes and the hot fudge sundaes I'm going to eat. Of course. 
And I can see that I did something, right? And then I get yeah. to sit on it and feel proud about it, right? And yeah. so I, I get a lot of pleasure from taking something. And I think that's the entrepreneurial part and watching it change into something different that's useful and aesthetic, aesthetically pleasing and, um, you know, just makes me happy. Yeah, and I think that... There, there. If you're going to be a homeowner, if you're going to, you know, if you want to own property, you should have some basic idea on how to do simple things. You know, and I, I think Rick saying choose something that uh, has a low fudge factor. It's a high very, fudge factor. A high fudge factor. Excuse me. A high fudge factor. <laughs> Tying in with the candy store story about yes. hot fudge. Um, yes. <laughs> I think that that really, uh, really speaks a lot about it because, you know, so what if you make a mistake where, right. you know, if you make it, you'll get over it, you know, somebody, right. you, then you can open up your wallet if you really don't like it and have somebody come do it for you. Right. But it's, what did you lose? Some time? Right. You know, there you go. Well, you were just telling me you got to go replace your shower head, right? And if yeah. you didn't know what you were doing and you did it wrong, it means the first time you turn it on, water's going to squirt all over the place. Exactly. But then you shut the water off and you're fine. Exactly. Um, you know, so you, you have to not be afraid. Electricity can be a little different. It can be a little more intimidating because if you're, if you're not careful, you could, you could really hurt yourself. That's a low fudge factor. That's, That's a low fudge, fudge factor. Right, right, right. And I started with things like wallpapering, which people don't even really do anymore, except for you recently, because yeah. you were tortured with <laughs> wallpapering your hallway. <laughs> and, and you know what? I have to say that that product, the paintable wallpaper, is the best thing and the worst thing all at once, because it doesn't cut like normal wallpaper because it's, it's so thick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like the, when you take your, your sharp utility knife and you're trying to go like past the woodwork to, to cut it apart, it was running and it was like, oh, tears, yeah, tears yeah. and uh, licking it and sticking it. And, but anyway, so but see, but that's a high fudge factor, right? Because right. when you're done, you were able to do things to hide that it didn't cut clean. And then you paint it over it. Now, when yep. you stand back and look, unless you said, see over here, yep. no one's going to know that that's a high fudge factor to me. Yeah. And you know what? I, 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 I think too, that, as educators, at least I say this to my kids all the time, there are mistakes that I, I give you the right to make right away. If you paint something wrong, that's great. Um, so I, I, I think that people say there's no such thing as bad mistakes. I agree with to an extent. But then I think there's sometimes where it's like you took a piece, of, you took a paintbrush, you licked it, you put it in Sally's ear, and then you ran around the room and poked your eye out. That's a bad mistake. You probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Where did you come up with that? I, I don't even know why I went down that rabbit hole. But, uh, you okay. know, so good <laughs> mistakes, good mistakes are things that you can take from that and grow. Bad mistakes. You shouldn't have even been doing that in the first place. What were you thinking right. about? Like, like sticking your finger in an electrical socket yes. to see if it's live. Yes. That is that is a bad mistake, John. Okay. <laughs> and, and, you know, right now, like, there, there are certain jobs that I would never try to do, like putting a roof on the house. No, mm -hmm. it's, it's just I'm writing it, even though even though you can watch YouTube videos and you're like, wow, this is not a difficult thing. I just don't want to do it. I just 
So, so my, my brother-in-law does that, right? So when we needed a roof, he taught us how to do that. So we actually did put a roof on our own house, but it was, it was a very, it was a very simple house. Like if you have lots of, I would, I would never tackle yeah. that by myself, but no. and it, it is very time consuming. And the other thing too, is the older you get, yeah, the, the, the the less inconvenienced you want to be with certain projects and being up yeah. on a roof and maybe falling off is not my idea of fun. Like it was when I was in my twenties and was willing to get up on the roof and say, Hey, I did, I did this, this is pretty cool. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to be that cool anymore. That, that was before social media. It was a cool thing to take a picture of you doing something scary so that people could, uh, comment on it and like oh you went over the falls in a barrel oh so anyway <laughs> let's talk speaking of going over the fall in the barrel i, I want to go <laughs> real quick so i really took a fascination with home repair uh when I was going into high school. So we had to choose a few high schools in Buffalo. I ended up not going there, but I had applied for McKinley High School because right. they had the building trades program. And I pictured myself for some time uh, being somebody who would work on building houses and plumbing and all that stuff. And then, and then I said, you know what? Now, <laughs> not for uh, me, not for me. So I went to a different high school instead, but that was definitely an opportunity. I got that from watching trading spaces on TLC. Yeah. Great and show. Then, great show. They brought it back. I don't know if it's back for good or if there was a few seasons, but then there's a television show that was in Canada called mm -hmm. Canada's worst handyman. I, I have seen it on your recommendation. And let me tell you that show watching people do ridiculous things and then going back and saying, you know what, I'm going to try that project because if they can do it after making the same mistake I probably was going to make, it was great and it works and you learn from that. So, Yes, but I've also watched people who who do things like they did on that show and that's a painful thing to watch. Yeah. And I'm like, "Oh my goodness gracious, you know, please step aside and allow somebody else to do this for you because I'm not sure this is going to get any better." I remember there was this one episode where they uh uh, in between the two walls, they had like that wood stripping that went across. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess before they had like the sheetrock that we have. Right. Now. The lat board, I think the it's called. Board. Yeah. And, and they had to put a safe into the wall. And that was one of their challenges. So they cut in and the, the, the carpenters, the master carpenters said uh, 16 inches in between each um stud uh, stud and of course this house was built before that so it wasn't 16 inches it was like right 20 inches <laughs> yeah so, right so they're like they're talking about how they have to cut into it and uh, they say the first thing you should do is use a stud finder and mark where the studs are and then you should cut into the wall well this one gentleman decided that that was too much for him. So he took a hammer and just started banging. Bashing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Add to the story, he ended up going through his room's wall into his components, his, his like opponent's wall. And so now they had a bigger mess to fix because he didn't take the time to do it. I just thought that was pretty fascinating um, and humorous. And I'm but sure that happens. A, a, a lot. A lot, yeah. So let's move on to cars. 
Now you have an affinity for vehicles. Uh, I and, love cars. And, and you, from the time that I've known you, in three years, you've had many. Uh, either you've bought them to refurbish them and sell them. Uh, you flipped them. You drove them for a little while and said, "I want something new." So talk about your fascination with vehicles and uh, and what got you there and um, and how being your own mechanic on some things has yeah. pr- has proved to be beneficial to you. I grew up in a neighborhood with pretty much all guys and no girls. So um, I spent a lot of time with a group of guys through middle school into high school. Um, uh, Tom Leolos, Leo Magori, Triple Cooper, you know, and, and, and these guys would work on their cars and do things and they would help me out. And they said, you know, it's important as a woman that you understand things because when you go to a garage to, to get your car repaired, they're going to tell you things are wrong that aren't wrong and you need to understand. So I used to spend a lot of time with them in their garages when I was growing up, uh, Mm -hmm. watching them work on cars. In fact, I remember the first time I came home and I said to my mother, um, my car, I was in high school, my car needs a front brake job. I'm going to do it. And the seal needs to be replaced. And my mother's like, Oh oh, no, no, no. (laughs) She's like, yeah, that's not going to happen because I can't have you stepping on the brakes and, um, them not working and you dying. And I, I was like, no, no, I can do it. And it took a lot of convincing. And um, my friend uh, Triple Cooper came over and the, the, he showed me how to do it. And we did it. And we also had a neighbor who worked on cars. He was a car aficionado. I said that word, but you know what I'm talking about. And Aficionado. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. And um, so what happened was, is my dad had Fiat Spiders when we were little, little kids. Mm -hmm. And I always thought they were pretty amazing and I loved them. So when I was um, in in college, I bought a used Fiat Spider and it was fantastic. Um, But at a certain point, I needed to, I needed more money to pay to go to college. So I sold the car. So I always said to myself, I hope someday I'm able to get another one. Mm-hmm. And then um, I won't tell you the age, but at a certain age, I'm like, okay, this will be my birthday present to myself. And I picked up a 1976 Fiat Spider from um, uh, Chicago and had it shipped here to the house for $1,500, you know, and they, and they told me things worked that didn't work and it took a long time and a lot of work, but we finally got that up and running and and refurbishing. And one of the things that uh, my friend taught me too, is an awful lot about how to do interiors of cars. So my mechanics, I know some things, but really where my expertise in cars are is refurbishing the interiors. So taking interiors and bringing them back to life and repairing certain things I can do, you know. Mm-hmm. So so I did that and then um, someone, I sold it and bought a new one. And then someone at uh, the University of Buffalo put a note on my car one day and said, will you sell me your car? So I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> So, you know, I sold him the car and then went out and bought um, a 1996 
BMW Z3 mm -hmm. and started working on refinishing that. And that was, that was a lot of fun because mechanically that car was completely sound, but it was lots of little things like the air conditioner didn't work and the squirters didn't work and the seats needed to be repaired and the dash lights didn't work and the seats shook and the glove <laughs> compartment was sagging. I mean, so, but those were things, all right. But those so, were things that were easy to fix, um, and you sounds, could find the parts on eBay. Uh, it sounds like a lemon law disaster, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the, see, but the fun part about that stuff, too, is, is that then you research the background of the car, where the car came from, you know. So pretty much every Z had a, sta a sagging glove compartment box because they made this huge, heavy box uh, and just a, a thin strip of plastic. So you, you spent eight bucks on a metal bar that was after factory design you took the box off you put the metal bar on you put it all back together it looks great you look like a hero you spent eight bucks and you swore a little bit and spent yeah. 45 minutes and you know but it made a huge difference in the way the interior looked and and that's why i could pick up the cars cheap too because they look at them and they go well the seats rock and this is wrong and that's wrong and that's what makes it so fun right is the hunt on ebay to find the parts sure. or to join the auto club for fiat and then start bu building relationships with people and they're like i'm like i need a, a 2000 logo for the key in the back and this is not a fuel injected and they all say 2000 fuel injected and I need this and I can't find it anywhere. And then someone messages you, Oh, I've got some, if you pay $5 for the shipping, I'll send you the logo. Okay, great. Oh, thanks. Nice. And you bring it, you bring it back to where it used to be. And, and that's again, kind of, that's a common theme for me. Like, right. You get something and you make it better yeah. and then you, and then you move on. And, yeah. and that's, that's really what I love to do. I guess that's the theme there for me. You know, the only thing I know about car restoration or building came from home improvement where Tim Taylor was just working in his garage building a hot rod and it would be on television. And I, I think you said something that actually happened in the show a lot where he would find these parts online, but that was before the internet. I mean, that was like right. in the 90s, right? Yes. So yeah. you would you would have to like probably look in magazines or something, I would assume, and write to people and call people. Probably, and, yeah. You know, yeah. so that's, that's really cool. So what do you remember the first car you ever owned what <laughs> what it was make model all that yeah it was a 1976 chevy nova tan with plaid seats the springs in the front seats were worn down so that I had to put a cushion. Otherwise, I would have been that lady driving, looking through the steering wheel instead of above it. It didn't have power brakes. So sometimes I had to like take both feet to bring that thing to a stop. It had an AM radio. And the big thrill of that was going to Kmart and buying an <laughs> FM converter. That was like my big claim to fame. I installed an FM converter. <laughs> so I had that. And then later on, they started making radios that you could buy and install in cars that were cassette decks. Uh -huh. um, and that was a big deal. So, yeah, that, you know, but yeah, Chevy Nova, that thing was I mean, it was a great car. It, 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 it always, it always stalled twice when you put it into gear to drive, <laughs> but on the third time it would go. Uh -huh. Um, and it was a tank. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was a tank. So yeah, I kept that car for a really long time. 
my my first car I got when I was a, a freshman in college, so 2009, yeah. it was a 1988 Ford Escort, baby blue, yes. all original parts. It had 5,500 original miles on it. That's it. And and the the story behind it was that it was uh, one of my mom's friends's brother's mother um, had this car, and she would uh, have it serviced but she would have the flatbed come pick it up tow it to the shop have all the stuff done to it tow it back to the house put it in the driveway so so uh, that's like a brand new car it was brand new the, the and as i had it it had some rust damage so what i did and my mom would help me we would i went to walmart i got rust-oleum mm-hmm. i sanded down the rust because it was, it was all um Surface rust. Surface rust, yeah. And I would paint a black racing stripe. And it was only on one side of the car. I was like, well, I can't drive around with only one racing stripe. So on the other side, I painted a black stripe. (laughs) And uh, it had those automatic seatbelts that would choke you when you uh, closed the door. Yeah. But but something it had, first of all, I looked like a giant driving this thing. Because this car, you know. It was little. It was tiny, and to buy it brand new back in '88, it was like seventy-five hundred dollars. Like yeah. it was, you know. And then, like the Ford Focus took over uh, right. for that model, right? And, right. And I just remember, I just remember getting that car, driving it, and there, on the passenger side, there was a little tray table above the glove compartment, and you could sit stuff on it. And I was like, that must be a, that must mean I've made it that I could sit something down in my car yeah. while I'm driving. Four years yeah, so- later. <laughs> no, go four on. years later, no, four years later, yeah. I I'm coming home from Rochester one night. It's 11:30. I get to the Clarence rest stop milepost 4:12. I slam into a deer and total it. <laughs> oh, I can't believe you remember the milepost marker. <laughs> I had to because I had to call. I, I remember this. So you, I, I'm at the Clarence rest stop. I call. Right. Uh, the uh, 911, they connect me to the state troopers who say, uh, we're, we're in the area, we're coming. The state trooper pulls up. He's like, is everything okay? I said, yeah. He's like, I just came from where you were. We don't see a body or anything. So the deer must have jumped off. Right. He's like, he looks at my car. He looks at me. I'm sobbing. He's like, but I'm going to have to write you a ticket for hunting without a license. And I said, he was joking, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, John. Uh, now, in hindsight, I find that hysterical. At the point, I was not very pleased. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> right. You didn't, yeah. But no, you said something about the cup holders. That was the other thing that was a big deal, right? You go to yeah. you'd go to Kmart, and you'd buy the 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 rubber steering wheel wrap that yep. had the holes in it and the boondoggle. Yeah. And you'd wrap your steering wheel, and then you'd buy the plastic container that would go on the big hump where the transmission ran to the back because every i think i don't know if you're if uh, the focuses were front wheel i think they were front wheel yep they were right yeah, so yeah. but the novas were rear wheels so they had this gigantic hump that ran the whole thing so you you put this plastic thing on the hump and that was your cup holder and and boy fm converter you know boondoggle steering wrap and my plastic cup holders i was good to go good to go and you know i'm just gonna say a funny story about that is that when when madison uh got her first car Mm -hmm. it had crank windows (laughs) and she got in the car and she said 
how do I open the windows? And I'm like, <laughs> these cranks here. And I don't want to make fun of my poor daughter, but she she had such little arms, it took her two hands to, <laughs> to, to crank that window down and up every time. But you know, it's funny because like we have cell phones now versus uh -huh. phones on the wall. And we're talking about the humps in the, in the middle of the car <laughs> that you have. And, and you know, now I, I don't know if there's any cars that are even made with hand crank windows. Right. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's crazy. Everything, everything is power now, but yeah, there used to be, I remember too, cause we used to have a four door and when I'd have to reach in the back and crank down the window <laughs> in the back seat when, you know, my daughter was hot, I'd crank it. And then I have to crank my, my God, dislocate your shoulder. Now I just oh, hit a button and it's automatic down and up and it's all it, good stuff. This, it's just something about it, you know, that takes away there, – there, there's those little things. Like, you know, like like the comedians are all talking about how cell phones don't allow you to get angry at somebody and slam the receiver down. That's like, right. I never thought just, of that. It's just like uh, <laughs> you just press <laughs> the button. You know, this is and, not quite the same impact. Not the same. Or like, you know, you don't want to talk to somebody and you're going to be dramatic and you just roll that window up real quick. It's like you got that anger. Now it's just like you press a button and it takes away – all that right. but but connie this was really nice talking with you tonight well good and, thanks john i appreciate it i was very happy that you were able to take time out of your busy schedule to uh speak to me so thank you very much my and, pleasure thank you and and uh, ladies and gentlemen this is connie hannell who uh spoke with us today um i'm very happy that she was able to come and speak with us uh please if you liked what you saw today like and subscribe to why bother on facebook and on youtube uh, we'd like to thank this month's sponsor, Krutinger Puppets. And I am happy to announce that Why Bother is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and Anchor. From all of us at Why Bother, which is really just me, uh, thank you for tuning in. And until next time, take care.